Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. You're looking at a tableau of reality. Things of substance, of physical material, a desk, a window, a light. These things exist and have dimension. Now, this is Arthur Curtis, age 36, who also is real. He has flesh and blood, muscle and mind. But in just a moment, we will see how thin a line separates that which we assume to be real with that manufactured inside of a mind. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema Presents the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo, once again I'm joined by my good friend and co-host for this series, 80Z. 80s, how you doing today? Doing great today. The Fifth Dimension is prospering and doing well, so yeah. glad to be back in. It was it was pretty ugly here snowing in the Fifth Dimension a couple days ago. With I know, so I know. It was pretty... Pretty bad over here, well, too. Well, here we are. We've made it all the way up to episode number 23 of season one so far. And this is titled A World of Difference. And, boy, we could go on and on about A World of Indifference, too. But we'll save that for towards the end of this because I don't care for this episode. And I'm not afraid to hold back and tell you why. And boy, you're... You said it grew on you, but I think it may be... Well, we'll save it for the end. We, we'll yeah, save, you're we'll just save it. you're dropping I'll your opinion it. in right at dropping your opinion in right at the beginning. Wow, it was really bad. And cut. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. All right. Well, I'm going to launch off into a world of difference, not a world of indifference. Uh, that's a good little inside joke that we have. The the Twilight Zone episode number twenty three of season one, and it was directed by Ted Post, and I just have a few. Uh, just a few notes here about Ted Post. He was a very prolific um, director of that time, and he primarily uh, worked in and on westerns, uh, western movies, western TV shows. Just a couple of westerns uh, TV shows that he directed uh, was Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, and The Rifleman. There were several more that I could have written down, but those were the ones that stuck out to me because those are the ones that I 
kind of recognized. So he was very prolific uh, actor, actor and director, primarily a director. And uh, he lived a pretty long life. I think he died at the age of 95. And um, yeah, some interesting little stories uh, that we could uh, maybe dig into Ted Post if you're interested or like Westerns of the 60s, which were really, really popular uh, at that time uh, in America in, in the 1960s. This was written by, uh, not Rod Serling this time, this was written by Richard Matheson. And the featured music was by Van Cleave. That was an interesting, too. The, the score, uh, it kind of got annoying to me. That was one thing that I noticed. The, the ominous tones that he used in this particular episode, they just they kind of grated on me for whatever reason. They, they weren't of the uh, superior kind, like, say, a psycho or something like that. Go ahead, Jimbo. But, but do you do know that some of the music uh, is from Perchance to Dream? Oh, was it that they just re yeah, retreaded? Music they re they reused the music from the Perchance to Dream, so I thought that was very interesting too. Okay, it just I don't know, it just kind of I know it was what it was intended intending to do, but it just really kind of grated on my my nerves after a while. <laughs> and I'll explain I'll explain that a little bit more later. But the original air date, first broadcast, March eleventh, nineteen sixty. And then the last category that I have here is we started putting in total production costs for this particular episode was $46,237.76. So again, just to put that into perspective, the average American made $3,000 to $5,000 a year, and this episode on its own cost $46,000. So again, I've forgotten to adjust that for inflation, but I'm sure it would be quite a hefty sum of money. So, uh, Jimbo, you want to handle the cast going forward? Absolutely. So, kicking off the cast, we have uh, playing, um, well, he plays Arthur Curtis, um, also Jerry Reagan. Slash Jerry Reagan, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, Howard Duff. Then Eileen Ryan plays Nora Reagan. David White as Brinkley. A uh, little interesting thing about Brinkley, Eric. Do you know what he was famous for? <clears throat> what did uh, he star in? Uh, well, he was in Bewitched. I know that he played Larry Tate on Bewitched. Larry Tate in Bewitched. He was also in Brewster's Millions as George Granville. Uh, oh, that's right. The Richard yeah. Pryor movie. Yeah. Then you had <laughs> this is a funny one, but Gail Cobe or Kobe, however you want to pronounce her name, uh, as Sally. <laughs> she played in. The Ten Commandments, and she was known as a pretty slave girl. Really? <laughs> I'm glad she didn't get the ugly slave girl. <laughs> they actually call her the pretty slave girl. Um, but she, something else about her is she went on to be a producer, and mostly of soap operas during the day, like uh, Bold and the Beautiful. She had like 269 episodes she produced, A uh, Guiding Light. Um, so she went, uh, and she was even the assistant producer on uh, what Days of Our Lives, I think it was. So her fame pretty much came after acting and more of the producing. Uh, then you had Peter Walker as Sam, Susan Dorn as Marion Curtis, Frank Maxwell as Marty Fisher, Bill Idelson as uh, the stagehand, which he was a writer. He was known for writing. He wrote for sh uh, shows such as Get Smart. Did you ever watch Get Smart? I've seen a couple of episodes, yeah. Of Get Smart. He also wrote for the Twilight Zone in the year uh, years 1960 and 61, so we should be some of, seeing some of his episodes coming up. 
And yes, even was a writer for the Andy Griffith Show. Okay. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, then you had Thomas Martin as uh, the technician and Robert McCord as a camera crew. Did you okay. go ahead and have something there? Yeah, I just wanted to back up to uh, circle back to Eileen Ryan. I had a trivia question for you. We spoke about that off air. Do you? She is the mother of what famous actor? Do you know Eileen Jack Ryan? Ryan. <laughs> That's a great guess. Um, um, Eileen, now let me let me ask this: Does the actor have the same last name as her, or is it no, different? no, she no, he doesn't. Eileen Ryan, she is the mother of think eighties. I'll give you a hint. I mean, he was really big in the eighties. With uh, 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 what's his name from Weekend at Bernie's, Andrew McCarthy. That is another great guess, but that would be incorrect. The correct answer is Sean Penn. So she's the mother of Sean Penn, famous 80s actor. Yeah, and kind of kooky. I think she also had that song written after, didn't she? Uh, Come on, Eileen. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. That would be another uh, deep dive in trivia, yeah. So, Eric, if if I told you, without looking at look at me, so... If I asked you to sum up this episode, give me a synopsis of this episode without looking at any notes, tell me Boy. what you would say to an audience. The, the simplest plot or synopsis that I could come up with is man thinks that he is someone else and put that on repeat and put that in spin cycle and repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, because that is basically the plot of this guy trying to convince other people that he is who he says he is. And that's pretty much it. There were some nice little inserts, but that was one thing. One of the things that disappointed me about the episode was there was really like no little subplot or any change of direction. Really? There is a twist at the end. Um, but really that's the whole episode. And it, it was, I did struggle a little bit to stay tuned in um, because it is kind of a repeat of the the same old. They just you know the same old thing. What do you think? What? How would you summarize it? Um. Well, I guess. Um, living living out your fantasy to the point of uh, forgetting reality. Okay. Okay. Um, I think that's how I would say it. The template that is set, okay, uh, and I went back over the weekend and I watched like the Truman Show. There are other TV shows that use this same uh, story template. I think if I had to surmise that the Twilight Zone is the originator of this story. Um, and like the Truman Show, you know, he's he doesn't know that he's being filmed if, if any of you guys aren't, hopefully I'm not, spoiler alert for the Truman Show, it came out like in 1998, so everybody should have seen it by now. But, you know, he's, Truman is stuck in a world that was created by directors and writers, and from birth he's been, you know, in front of the camera lens, and he doesn't know it. He thinks it's his regular life, and all around him are stand-ins and actors, and and he thinks he's living his life, but he comes to realize at the end of the movie it was just all a huge elaborate scheme and he was on a set etc etc um but i think you know the twilight zone probably was the originator of that story template that they you know broadened out and one of the limitations that the twilight i think it might have been better if they would have had more time to expand that out but when you're trying to cram it all into 26 minutes you're not going to get the full you know 
fullness of the story, I guess is a way to say it. And so, so they were limited. So let, me, let me let me ask you this then. Do you think that this episode would have been better <clears throat> set um, basically either into a two part two parter or a full hour long episode? I, I do. Because another T V show that fits into that template, it was I went back and watched this show from the uh, sitcom from the nineties called Mad About You. I don't know if you've seen it. It's from the early 90s. And they kind of did a, a spoof on this episode. It was kind of the same template. The, the, it was a two-part episode, and it was called Up in Smoke. Now, Mad About You it was not one of my favorite TV shows. The, the show stunk, in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. But um, the episode uh, wasn't that great either. But they used that. I, I bring that up because they used the template, and they go to a place called the Twilight Room for their third year anniversary or something and then from there um the the story sort of goes along the lines and along the theme the plot is that what if we had never met each other and gotten married and our lives went two different directions and we live in two different places and you know what if our paths hadn't intersected at this one particular time so it's a little bit different take but you know they they did mention the twilight room and so i think that's why they but not only mad about you, I think I read that Saturday Night Live did a, a, a skit on it with the original Star Trek cast. Yeah, I looked for that. Cast. I looked for that and I couldn't and, find um, it. But if you remember that show Erie, Indiana, that used to come on TV, I think they did something too. Yeah. And then I, I think also there was one that, um, what was it? Uh, I think there was going to be a Leave It to Beaver episode too. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it says. Uh, I'll throw this in here, that the episode was spoofed in 1983 book, The Beaver Papers, The Story of the Lost Season, by Will Jacobs and Gerald, or Gerard Jacobs. A par- well, it was a parody of Leave it to Beaver, mm-hmm. uh, featuring a lost season comprising 25 episodes written in the style of famous writers. In The Beaver Zone, supposedly written by Rod Sterling, Ward Cleaver is having dinner with his family when he hears an offstage voice yell, Cut! He sadly finds himself on a soundstage. He is told that he is an alcoholic actor named Hugh, Hugh Beaumont, and Ward Cleaver is merely the character that he plays in Leave it to Beaver. The story ends with Beaumont boarding a commuter train and retreating to the idyllic imaginary world of Mayfield, parodying the later episode of The Twilight Zone, A Stop at Willoughby. Now, now, when did this come out? 1983? Well, uh, it, was, it was in the book. Uh, oh, it was in a book. The, the Beaver Papers, The Story of the Lost Season. Now that would have it been. Parody, it was a parody of Lisa to Beaver. Okay. So, that would have been. Uh, that would have been good. I would like to see that. You know what? That kind of reminds me of. With we're not gonna. Uh, that kind of reminds me of WandaVision, the first first episode. I was thinking the same but thing. I'm not. We're not gonna touch. No, that. we're not gonna touch we're WandaVision. Gonna watch, and I'm not gonna spoil <laughs> anything. But if you haven't seen it, that is a great show. I am really digging it. Yeah, it took Especially me the first two episodes. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, it took me till about obviously things start to come together in episode four, but I digress. We're not going to go but you know too deep into Wandavision. I think we better start talking about this episode. I think we should. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> we we we've given too many uh, trivia and little insights. So as we open the the episode, we meet Arthur Curtis slash Jerry Reagan. He he is fully Arthur Curtis at this point. And he comes into the office, and uh, we start with the opening narration. He's a successful businessman, and he actually will come to soon to find out that he is uh, planning a vacation to San Francisco with his loving wife, Marion. After arriving at the office and talking with his secretary, Sally, 
Um, we later find out he, well, let me back up a little bit. He's talking to his secretary about his daughter Tina's birthday party and how she's really excited. And they, you know, they have some small talk, chit chat and discuss a little business. And then he goes to the next room and goes into his office and sits down at his chair. Well, it's important. Let me, let me interject this. This is a really important key too. He opens the blinds in both the outer office and then his inner office wall. And then he looks outside, goes and sits down. And I'll explain why that's important later. Uh, sits down to make a phone call. The phone he, is doesn't dead. He, doesn't he shut the doors too? Yeah, he has like, uh, what do you call those? The, like sliding doors. Yeah, sliding doors. It wasn't like a traditional door with a doorknob like that. We wouldn't. Yeah, it was a little bit different. And then once he tries to make the phone call the phone is dead and then after a few seconds he hears someone yell uh you know out in the distance cut and then uh the camera pans back over to the wall where he had just looked out the window and adjusted the blind so that he could look out the window of his office and it's complete the wall is completely gone and he's on a set you know there's cameras and crew members and you know just people standing around and then the director approaches him and you know uh jerry reagan slash arthur curtis is just completely well i'm gonna call him arthur curtis because he thinks he's arthur curtis he's completely confused at this point and i wanted to tell you about the blinds because it was actually the director's idea uh the director being ted post that the whole wall uh, be put on wheels uh, for this episode so that you know they could roll the wall away when they came to this particular point in filming and I thought that was a really cool idea I thought that was well, uh, neat how they well, did the, that the, the reason he did that and that was the part I was gonna uh, paragraph I was gonna uh, read sure is that it had it had to be silent because it was a continuous shot mm-hmm so um, let me go ahead and read this little a uh, couple paragraphs I had. Um, the nature of identity, or am I who I think I am, has always been a theme of the Twilight Zone that, that I would explore many times. Of a world of difference, Richard Matheson <clears> says, <throat> I like that one. It's one of those uh, Kekaski uh, ideas that you get that a man goes to his office, thinks he's living his normal life, and suddenly find out that he's an actor on a set. To effect the transition from one reality, the office business as usual, to the other, the soundstage, Director Ted Post, whose movie credits include Magnum Force, Hang 'em High, and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, employed an ingenious visual trick. The scene in the show goes on as follows in one continuous shot. Business, businessman Arthur Curtis enters his office. We see all four walls establishing its solidity, solidity, solidity and reality. Curtis sits down at his desk and picks up the phone, only to find that the line is dead. Suddenly... He hears someone say, cut. As he turns to look in the direction of the voice, the camera follows his gaze to reveal that uh, that one wall has disappeared, revealing a soundstage with a full production crew looking on. To accomplish this shot, one wall was built on rails and removed during the scene. Because it was one continuous shot, the wall had to move silently, which it did. Buck Houghton was totally supportive of this procedure, explaining... If you're going to prove something, it's better to prove it in a continuous shot so that people are really nailed. Yeah, that was uh, yeah one of the reasons why I wanted to highlight that. That was a really cool feature 
in this particular scene. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, so basically, Gerald Reagan is the real Arthur Curtis, and he is uh, he is a he's an actor in the movies. And he's a movie star, and he's caught in the middle of a... We come to find out he's an actor who's caught in the middle of a brutal divorce from his hostile wife or ex-wife, Nora, um, played by Eileen Ryan. His own alcoholism and his declining career. Apparently, his mental health has been deteriorating for some time, and the studio is fed up with him. So we kind of come to that point, like the director... What's the director's name again? I forgot that he's talking to right now. Not Buddy. I, I'm sorry. Oh. It slips my mind. So uh, the director. He's getting really frustrated. The director is, and then I guess like one of his agents um, comes up to him, and his name is Sam, and he has a great line. He says, "Wise up, buddy. You're on the edge." Like basically telling Arthur Curtis, or yeah, I'm gonna do this all the time. Gerald Reagan. I'm gonna you know use their names interchangeably it's the same person he's telling Gerald Reagan look man your career is on the edge meaning like you've messed up so many times with your alcoholism and all the other shenanigans that have been going on and you're about to get fired you're about to lose your job this is like the last stop for you this this movie and he's just totally confused and Gerald Reagan is just he's backing up and he's got you know he just doesn't understand he's I don't know how many times I heard the line who are you people? I don't know any of you. I don't know any of you. And this is all just like really distressing to him. By the way, I mean, just as a side note, I mean, Howard Duff really plays this well. I mean, he's the he's the bright spot in this. I thought he did a really good job as far as the acting part goes. I Again, I thought the story was very cyclical and it just, you know, it really didn't go anywhere. It was just kind of like the same things over and over in, in different scenes. But uh, I thought he did a really, really good job of of selling it and so we go uh, along the story a little bit further and I, and I don't want to go rehash over the whole episode but he tries to call out um, to his house he calls operator 411 information or whatever it is at that time at a, a phone that's off set and you know he's trying to call his to get information to call his home on Ventnor Road the operator says Ventnor Road doesn't exist. He gets very frustrated. And he, again, is just trying to convince all the people that are on the set that his name is Arthur Curtis. Uh, but as we've already discovered, Arthur Curtis is a character that he is playing in this particular film. And this goes on and on for a while until he runs off the set and he almost gets ran over by his ex-wife, Nora, who's, you know, pulling the car around and she almost hits him and he falls down and you know again just that cyclical story he you know she's telling jerry like i'm gonna soak you for everything you got and in the divorce and he's like i don't know who you are i don't know any of these people and jimbo did you have something some tidbit that you wanted to interject here well, two things one one i don't think they're technically divorced yet I think right. at the whole point she's wanting to sign those papers. Right. And uh, number two, he's like, I think he said, did his, wasn't the, the lady that he thinks he's married to named Sally and his daughter? Uh, Mar daughter? Marion, and his daughter's name Marian. is Tina. Okay, yeah. So, you know, he's like, I'm married to Marion, and, you know, my daughter's Tina, and we live up through a 244 whatever. He's like, I just, I got to get there, you know, and then I can prove to you that I, I don't know who you are. 
Yeah, so they jump in the car and they drive to where Arthur Curtis thinks his home is. And well, he steals the car, basically. Yeah, he jumps in the... He the jumps, seat. yeah. He jumps in the driver's seat and about hits, you know, four or five people trying to exit the soundstage lot. Or uh, I think this was filmed. This part was filmed in like Universal, wasn't it? I think I read that in uh, the in the book. Yeah, I it, think so. Um, so he's, you know, whipping the car around, and then Nora stops him and says, "You know, get MGM. out. You're gonna, yeah, okay, MGM. Thanks. Um, you're gonna kill us all." And I mean, so she jumps over and. Actually, I think he stays in the driver's seat, maybe. And he convinces her that he's okay to drive. And they drive up to uh, what he thinks is his neighborhood. He encounters a little girl on the sidewalk. And he thinks it's his daughter because she's standing with her back to him. And he walks up to her and says, Tina, Tina, which I don't understand. Okay, and here's why. Here's something I picked up as I was watching through. The picture on his desk shows... His daughter, Tina, who is... Now, that could have been an older picture, I guess, would be a way to explain it. But she has short hair and uh, next to a picture of his wife. He has those two pictures on his desk. But the girl that he approaches on the sidewalk has long braided hair. So I'm like, why would he think that is his daughter? But now that I think about it, I guess that could have been an older picture well, of his know, daughter. It, it reminded me of... Uh, do you remember the, going to Kmart and they'd have those those picture things that they would pull down, and, like the, the leaves or the, the trees or whatever, and they would take your picture right there in Kmart or whatever? That's what it reminded me of that was on his desk because she had that pose of like looking this way. Right. Um, so I, I would put it more like that was like her maybe her kindergarten picture or preschool picture. And yeah. Now she's probably like in second or third, second grade probably. Yeah, that makes sense. And just one little small note, like the girl has a line, uh, mom, mommy, mommy, that was the man, or she, you know, points out uh, who uh, Arthur Reagan, or Arthur Reagan, Arthur Curtis is. And if you look closely, that voice was dubbed in after because, you know, I just, I just picked that little bit up. Yeah, it's not, she's not moving her lips at all. Yeah. So some people probably won't find that very interesting, but those are the little things that interest me but um so again this this protesting goes on he so i think at this point nora gets in the car and she says come on or gets in the driver's seat of the car and says come on let's go home and she takes him to his actual home and he doesn't recognize any of this do you think just just as a question do you think he's having like a a psychotic episode do you think that's what all this is you think it's a mental uh, mental illness issue. I don't know because it's the Twilight Zone. You know, you could go a lot of different I'll, ways. I'll, I'll reserve my for uh, the end. Thing at the end. Okay. So. All right. Let's work through the through the story a little bit more then. And so they come to their house, his actual house. This would be Reagan's house, and his wife Nora or soon to be ex-wife wants him to sign you know like Jimbo said earlier she wants him to sign like the divorce papers and sign well to write her a check I think is what it was she wanted a check she was going to make sure she got her money up front before he has this mental breakdown and then you know all the legalities come into play where he's not of sound mind to, to make any financial decisions so she wants to get herself squared away and nailed down and then this is it at the house. This is where we meet. Um, I'm assuming like this is his agent, uh, Brinkley. And Brinkley, you know, he brings a really kind of compassionate 
he's the opposite of Nora. I think he really genuinely cares for um, for Jerry Reagan, and you know he's trying to to help him. I, I feel like he's trying to help him. He's really concerned for him, and he tries to explain to him again. Well, let me back up. There's a copy of the script of the movie that that he's in, and he's trying to convince Jerry that he is um, that he's not Arthur Curtis, and he reads various lines from the script describing his wife in the movie and you know important aspects of the character that he's playing. He's he's trying to convince him. Brinkley is, look, Jerry, you're not really Arthur Curtis. You're Jerry Reagan. And, you know, this is all because up until this point, I think that people in his real life think that he's just playing it up like an actor to get out of certain responsibilities, like with his ex-wife, to get out of, you know, for whatever reason, they think this is all like a big gag. But now we kind of realize that maybe there is some like mental illness issues going on here, and he really believes this, and he's not just acting and putting on a show. But I have a question. Go ahead. At the at the beginning of the film, when um, his I guess it would be his agent, right? Uh, One of his agents, like, yeah. He's like Jerry. Well, you know what's going on. My my thing is, was he already a troubled actor at this point? Because to me, it seemed like they were making it like, hey, this is your last chance in show business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You've got all these opportunities. You've squandered them all away. We don't know the backstory there. But to me, I get the feeling that, hey, this is his last straw. And maybe that's drove him to the point of the mental breakdown because he's got so much pressure on him that he has to succeed at this this, this one role that he it overcame his life. Sure. I would agree with that. Yeah, that's a very good uh, explanation of how he got to this particular point. And I think you're spot on Jimbo that the, everyone around him is just kind of like fed up because he is just ruined, you know, uh, his career at this point. Um, so one important scene that I dare not skip over. Um, Jerry makes a phone call from his house. Um, and he's, He's trying to phone his workplace. He, he's trying to, he, and in another attempt to try to convince them that he is Arthur Curtis, he goes, I'll prove it to you. I, and he sits down, he takes the phone, he says, I need to make a call to the Davis Morton Company in Los Angeles, California. And then the, the operator, of course, on the other end of the line says, that company, I don't have a listing for that. That company doesn't exist. And he's just exasperated at this point. And he's like, it has to be there. You're wrong. I've worked there for the last seven years. And that was a you know a really important and good scene. It was really dramatic. And so then we move away. Um, actually, that scene happens before, you know, his interchange with Brinkley that I mentioned earlier. And so Brinkley gets a phone call in in the midst of all of this, and basically they're shutting down production on the movie that he just left. And so I think in an attempt to to scramble and to try to maybe save this light that he created, he you know they're going to start disassembling the set. So he jumps in his car and he tries to make it back down to the set, and um, he ends up they they've already started taking down pieces of the set and he makes it back into his office and um, before they completely disassemble it and Jimbo you'll appreciate this 
Um, I don't remember the exact line. I think the line is something, well, Jerry Reagan puts his head in his hands, and I think he speaks a line similar to like, please don't leave me here like this. And then, Jimbo, you'll appreciate this, the lighting. Did you notice that? The lighting the on his, yeah. the shadow and the lighting on his face. It's like it, It's like the Twilight Zone gave him a gift of some sorts. And all of a sudden, his TV wife or movie wife, Marion, comes in and he's like, let's get out of here. We got to get out of here. And it, you know, I think this, the episode closes with a shot of an airplane taking off. And he and his wife, the, the assumption you are left with, and here's the little twist at the end, there's a movie script sitting on the desk in his office and there's a zoom in tight shot and it says the private or private life or the, the private world of Arthur Curtis is the title of the script. And then we see the airplane taking off and it is assumed we are left with the assumption that he has somehow escaped into his fake or TV life, which is the exact opposite of the Truman show where Truman is trying the opposite. He's trying to escape into the real world from his alternate TV world movie world. So yeah. Jimbo, any thoughts? <laughs> well, I'm just going to throw a couple things in there. Um, at the MGM studio lots, um, when he's, um, the exterior of the Reagan house for Duff pays a visit after leaving the studio, it was also on lot two and is known um, at the studio as the Philadelphia Story House. And that's important because it was the same house featured in the 1940 motion picture, The Philadelphia Story. Duff walks up to the very door where Cary Grant pushes uh, Catherine Hepburn down to the ground, but turns and walks away so he can face the little girl. So um, there's a little bit of renovations that's been done to that house along the way. So some of the bricks been changed to white siding and all that. But I thought that was cool um, for those that have ever seen The Philadelphia Story. Um, also, um, what was it? Um, I read that, um, if you remember the scene where he jumps in the car, he steals, um, I can't think of his name, uh, Brinkley's car, and he's driving around. You notice that stock footage, man, where he's going in and right. out of cars? Yeah. Um, they think that that stock footage was actually used, uh, from a different era because of the different cars that were mm -hmm. different models. And yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um... The there's a painting um, that's hanging in the Reagan house where Sally is trying to force Arthur to sign the papers. Mm -hmm. That painting we have seen before in Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. It was uh, hanging in the Sturka house in Third from the Sun. And it was also makes an appearance in Mr. Pennell's suit in The Four of Us Are Dying. Mm -hmm. Just a little side note on decorations. If you notice really closely, if you go back and watch... There's a statue of a horse on the side table where the rollaway wall is that we talked about previously. It's there in the beginning when he comes into the office. When they roll the wall away, they take that horse statue off when the wall is open, you know, and everybody's all standing there in the camera and stuff. But if you go back and watch it at the end of the episode, they reinsert the statue. Even though the wall's moved away, they put it back on that table again so just a little continuity error there that's it's kind of weird they they put it there take it away put it there you know kind of cool and, and and i know you'll really like this one just from uh the episode we did on elegy <laughs> that staircase <laughs> um, 
<laughs> was located on stage night. It's the same stairway that makes an appearance of Wick Wire's house in Elegy. And I was like, he's going to love this. But they got a they got a lot of use out of that staircase. It can also be seen in the San Francisco Hotel Lobby in One Step Beyond episode Earthquake Initial Telecast, January 12, 1960. Um, so the total set decoration production costs $1,080. Now, I'm going to throw something out there. I'll go ahead and give my, my ideal first, okay? Okay. This episode reminds me a lot of the 16 millimeter Shrine. Interesting you should say that. Huh? I think I might know where you're going with this. Go ahead. Well, no, but I'm just saying because um, that lady, she was a famous actress who had lost her glory years, if you will. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to get back to those years. Mm -hmm. Whereas this guy, he's trying, uh, what's his name? Uh, Curtis, he's trying to get to those glory years, you know what I mean? Or he may even be over the hill and he may be trying to get there. Um, But... The, the, the thing that's crazy about all that is Ida Lupino. That's who what was I was. In the 16 Miller yep. Shrine is actually married to the guy that played Arthur Curtis in this episode. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was really cool because she even wanted a 16 millimeter uh, copy of this to show their daughter eventually one once she grew up or whatever. It's to show she said he's that's the best he's ever acted, and she wanted to make sure that her daughter got to see that um, when they got older. Also. Um, let me see here. Uh, man, you know, sometimes I get, you start talking, you start saying something, I start scribbling stuff down. Now here's something else. Have you ever thought of this? We, we talked in the mirror image about every person has a doppelganger, they look alike or whatever, okay? Mm -hmm. I've always wanted it to be, uh, do a Twilight Zone episode-ish about, let's say me and you, Okay. Me and you are living our life. But what if the life we're living isn't our life? It's actually like our shadows, okay? So the shadows are the, actually the ones that are having the real world life, and we're actually their shadows. Okay. You see what I mean? We're, we're not really in, in this world. You know, it's our shadows, and we're just a figment of our own imaginations, but it's actually the shadows. Because we can see our shadows. Can our shadows see us? You know, hmm. Are we mimicking what the shadows are doing? Hmm. But see, we all our, our our brains are focused to look the other way. Hmm. And the have a have a because... have a script ready for me by Friday. <laughs> it's a good conceptual. It's a good conceptual uh, idea. Okay, so 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 I gave you the doppelganger one. I gave you the shadow uh, shadow slash uh, our 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 thing. And then what about this one? What about what you're watching? in this episode is not Jerry Reagan. What if it is actually the characters, Arthur Curry, his his thing and all that, and it's they were pulled from their reality into our world, if you will. Yeah, it could and be in reverse. That right. would be the real Twilight Zone uh, twist, you know what I mean? Right, I thought about that too. It really was Arthur Curry, and he was Curtis, Jerry. Yeah. Jerry was the made-up persona that we... You know, just because the way we think and we, we function and we see these people on screen, we are to assume that since a director said cut, that this is real life and he is just an actor playing this part. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, 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 the twist here is that it's actually the uh, characters from the play, because at the end when the script changes, the private life of Arthur Curry 
You know what I mean? He's actually he closed that deal. He's gone. He's he's finally they're done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's my thought. My my personal feeling on this episode. I didn't really care for it. Um, there was some good acting in it uh, from Howard Duff, especially. Um, it's just it just it seemed rushed. Um, and and I would like to since seen some underlying storyline develop throughout this because they can they can take take me usually in a half hour show such as the Twilight Zone or 40 minutes or whatever it is and they draw me in where I end up wanting more you know more 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 mm-hmm. but to this one I didn't even want more I just wanted it to end because that's how bad it was mm-hmm. um, to me this is a lower tier of season one it may be in the bottom two of season one personally yeah I didn't really care for it at all it didn't take. It didn't make my top ten uh, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I would. I would agree that I don't think. It, I don't think it in that negative of terms. Maybe as you think of it. Again, I, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier off the air. But I think when you dig in and do the research and you learn more about some of the production things and the little facts and tidbits and. Uh, some of the thinking that went into the writers and the directors, it, it kind of gives you a little bit better appreciation. I appreciate it for what it is. It is a template that is used, the story. However, I did think it it did drag at times, and it was very cyclical. It was just like, you know, they were trying to convince uh, him that he was someone. He was trying to convince them that he was someone else. And again, there was sort of a lack of subplots, and... You know, that he was, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. I guess it leaves me with the question. Do you think that, I'm just going to throw this out there. Do you think that Arthur Curtis, Jerry slash Jerry Reagan, did he, did he die in the end? Did he go mentally insane? Or did he actually, there's the third option, did he actually escape to the Twilight Zone? Did he actually escape into that uh, life that he idealized in his mind? Or was he even in the Twilight Zone to begin with? Was the Twilight Zone the reality that we live in, from his perspective? Right. With and your with your point there. that with your point, he actually was Arthur Curtis, and Jerry Reagan was the invention or the figment character that he was right. pulled into, and he was just trying to get back to home or to his reality or right. whatever. Um, and you see this in a lot of Twilight Zone episodes about am I who I think I am? There's twists and all yeah. that. Um, and I think and I think that the end of this episode leaves it wide open. Um, I think I think Rod Serling even got a question that he's that somebody asked him he's like, hey, we don't understand your episode ending. You know, can you explain to us? He's like, that's the beauty of the Twilight Zone, basically. You know what I mean? Welcome aboard. Um, but I think I think the ending, um, how it is, um, it's kind of like Citizen Kane the movie. Everybody has their opinion on what Rosebud means at the end of that when he when he says that. So it's like here when they do the ending, you can go several ways with it. So it doesn't. It, I don't think there's a wrong answer here. It's just whatever you think it is. And for our listeners, what do you think it is? Let, we want to hear from you. Email us. Send us an MP3 clip. Um, you know. Rate us on iTunes. Give us a good rating. We would really appreciate that. But we want uh, we want to hear your feedback. So we'll just kind of leave that open ended as far as the podcast goes. You know, send us right. your thoughts, your feelings. What do you think? Things that we missed in the episode. We would uh, really love to get your feedback on it. 
So, well, I think this episode's coming to close. Next time we record, we will be doing Long Live Walter Jameson. And boy, if you think this one was... Uh, the next one makes up uh, the next one makes up for it very well I, I really like that one so yeah um, well uh, you got any any closing statements you would like to say no I think for one that we we weren't that fond of we we did a pretty good job of covering most of the material I think hopefully <laughs> all right well Eric take us home I think that's a wrap on this episode and cut operandi for the departure from life is usually a pine box of such and such dimensions and this is the ultimate in reality but there are other ways for a man to exit from life take the case of Arthur Curtis, age 36 his departure was along a highway with an exit sign that reads this way to escape Arthur Curtis and route to the twilight zone